I hope you caught the words that Phil shared from the Scriptures this morning at the end of our communion service, that we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The Christian life, if lived properly, has the constant daily awareness of the return of Jesus Christ, and that's why we focus our attention on these matters here at Fellowship Bible Church to encourage us and to remind us. If you'd like a booklet, they are available online at fbcva.life. If you want an electronic form or if you want the hard copy, they're available on these little stands that are in the back of our worship center, and please help yourself to those. We'd uh, welcome you to do that as the sermon outlines and some other material is given uh, to help you in the understanding of this series. One thing that's in the back are some recommended reading sources, uh, just different uh, materials written by various uh, scholars uh, on some of the subjects that we are discussing that I use um, for my uh, studies and so forth, and welcome you to uh, consider those things. I shared with you last week that my wife and I fly occasionally, I would say several times a year, uh, to Omaha, Nebraska to see two of our four kids who live in that region of the country. On one particular occasion, Patty was going alone, and she, this time, had a layover in Chicago. She was waiting for the plane to arrive that would take her on her final leg. And while she was waiting at the gate, individuals came and explained what was going to be taking place and began to hand out little uh, American flags for the people at the gate to wave as they lined up in two lines from the jetway into the terminal because this plane had a plane full of soldiers that were returning home. And they wanted to give them a warm American welcome in which they did. Soldiers coming home, a very spectacular and very meaningful and very emotional event. And today in our passage, we are going to talk about another occasion in which soldiers are coming home. People that are going to experience a battle, and they're on their way home. And that's the event that we will be discussing in the Olivet Discourse today. Again, the Olivet Discourse was Jesus' longest discourse on prophetic and future events he gave it from the Mount of Olives, and that's why we call it the Olivet Discourse. The, Olivet, or the Mount of Olives is very special in the sense that not only is it the place that Zechariah tells us that Jesus will actually return, but it was also the place in which he ascended into heaven. He gives this discourse to encourage his disciples as they had two primary questions. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? I'd like to read to you a passage about the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. He says this, John writes in Revelation 19, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven 
clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. The Greek word for heaven, by the way, can be translated as sky. And it's likely when Jesus says what he does in the Olivet Discourse, which we'll look at in a moment, that what John saw was that the skies opened, particularly the clouds. And there Jesus is on a white horse to descend onto this earth to the Mount of Olives itself to make war. The nations of the world have gathered under the authority and power of the man of sin. They've made their way down from Armageddon and the Jezreel Valley in order to attack Jerusalem and finally, once for all, annihilate it and certainly annihilate everyone by that time who has put their faith in Jesus. But the king of kings makes his descent, but he does so with an army. He does so with a massive group of people who follow him on white horses. Now, before we go any further, I want to say this. As we look at the Old Testament passages that prophesied the first coming of Jesus Christ, we know how literally they were fulfilled. How we dare not understand that his second return will be just as literally fulfilled. What we're studying is not a fairy tale. These are not made-up stories or figurative speech, but reality that is about to take place in the history of our world. An army is going to follow him, but we must ask, who is that army? Who makes up those soldiers? And today, I hope that you will find the answer to that question encouraging. Let's move on in our discourse in Matthew chapter 24, and today we pick it up at verse 29. We have learned so far that Jesus outlines the events that are going to take place prior to his return. Correlating with the book of Revelation, these events take place over a seven-year period of time, divided up into two periods of three and a half years each, and in the middle is what is called the abomination of desolation, where the man of sin sets himself up as in an image form to be worshipped. His image is to be worshipped, and anybody who doesn't worship him will be killed. And Jesus says, when you see that happen, make haste. On the west side of the Mount of Olives is the city of Jerusalem. But if you turn around on the Mount of Olives and look to the east, you would find that there's a rapid descent down to the Dead Sea. And there are mountains in that area. And Jesus said, flee to those mountains. Flee to the mountains, the very place that David fled from Absalom and from King Saul. Run, and run for your lives. Don't take time to pack a lunch or pack a bag. This whole event of seven years, Jesus uses the analogy of giving birth because there will be the birthing of the kingdom of God, a thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth under a perfect government. Mark Carey has been sharing with us that last number of months from the book of Isaiah containing all the characteristics of that kingdom. But the earth has to go through trauma first. And Jesus uses the analogy of birth pangs or labor pains, and he says the first three and a half years will be labor pains, but the second three and a half will be intense labor pains. The difficulties of the first three and a half years will be increased in the second three and a half years. The world is in for some severe turbulence. As we pick it up in verse 29, as he refers now to the end of that period, to his second coming, he writes, or he says, immediately after the tribulation or birth pangs of those days, 
The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There's a lot of things that can put fear into mankind like earthquakes, tornadoes, and hurricanes. But that pales to what will, the earth will face when they see the heavenly bodies doing things that they've never seen before. That will be extremely intimidating. That will be extremely threatening as they watch all this heavenly phenomenon take place that leads to the white horse with the king of kings descending out of the clouds to the Mount of Olives. Then the sign of the Son of Man, or the sign as the Son of Man in the Greek text, meaning that his appearance is a sign or the final sign itself, will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will recognize that in spite of all their power, with the world's armies combined together, as the world has never seen under the unification of the man of sin, that they would make their descent to Jerusalem in great confidence and arrogance. And now they see what's coming. The king of kings with a massive army behind him. And they mourn. If I can put it in our vernacular, they realize they're toast. They're done for. They realize what's going to take place and the battle ensues. My dad fought in World War II. As an 18-year-old, he was drafted into the United States military. He actually served in the Navy. The government took him out of the cornfields of Iowa and brought him to the Pacific Ocean. He was a diesel mechanic on landing craft. He remembers watching Marines departing from that boat and less Marines coming back on but not so much in the war that we're talking about here because there will not be one fatality of those that are coming out of the sky because they'll be coming in perfect bodies, bodies that can never die again. There will not be one fatality, but there will be massive fatalities of those on the earth, and that's why the eagles and the birds must come and eat the flesh of captains and kings. And they will see the Son of Man, Jesus says, coming on the clouds of heaven, with power and great glory, great glory and power, and they will be stricken with fear. The word coming here is the word in Greek text that means the actual arrival. The other word for coming used in the previous text that we've already studied is the word, a different word, meaning the span of things that lead to the coming or the actual arrival. In other words, the coming is a process. But then there's that actual arrival was the term that he uses here. And he will send his angels with great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together the his elect from the four winds from the one end of heaven to the, to the other. Excuse me. There will be many people who will come to faith during these seven years. A massive missionary effort by 144,000 missionaries will result in great fruit. And at this coming, Jesus will assemble all believers to come and to join that massive army together. And all of God's people will be together. It's an incredible event. He's coming to take back what is rightfully his. 
In Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, Satan became the ruler of this world, and today he is ruling effectively. This is Satan's world. But Jesus is not forfeiting the world that he created, and he's coming back to win what is rightfully his, and I will even say what is rightfully ours, because he delegated dominion over the earth to us, and now he is going to delegate rulership of this new kingdom to his faithful saints. He's come to take it back. Jesus concludes this section with a parable. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. This will happen, he says. My words will be totally fulfilled. And this generation that he is speaking of, Jesus does what all the prophets do, and that is that they speak in the time period of which they are foretelling. And the generation that experiences these events will not pass away until all of this is fulfilled. In other words, this is going to be in a limited time. This is not going to be spanned out over decades and centuries. This generation will fulfill it to the end. And when you see some of these signs taking place, he says to the people living in that period, know that it's close. This will be an encouragement to the believers who are living during those tumultuous times of unbelievable, catastrophic events as defined in the book of Revelation. Read Revelation to find out more of the details. We as pastors occasionally go out for lunch together once in a while, and one particular day, Mark Carey and I went out for lunch. We went to Ruby Tuesdays, and while we walked in, we saw a group of men from FBC that they were gathered, later to find out they meet every Tuesday together for lunch somewhere at some restaurant. Like men do, we exchange a few friendly verbal jabs. We'll send our check over to your table, those types of things. Mark and I then went to a separate booth to discuss some things, and one of the people that was in that group, his name is Jeff. Jeff, um, Jeff talks to me periodically about an event in the future that is known as the rapture. The reason we call it the rapture is because it's the Latin translation from a word in 1 Thessalonians Arpazo, which means to be caught up. It's the passage where Paul describes the event where believers will go into the, to the skies to meet the Lord in the air. Jeff will ask questions. In fact, just three weeks ago, my son and I, following the worship service on a Sunday morning, were in this hallway right over here, and Jeff approached, and I have another question for you about the rapture. And he began to proceed with his question. He he likes to talk about the rapture. Today we're going to be talking about that. I usually call it the taking, and you'll see why in a few minutes. But whatever we call it, it's an event that every Christian should be very aware of. You see, the flight plan that God has for the world of seven years of great labor pains 
He has a different flight plan for believers in Jesus Christ who have put their faith now in him. Let's look at what that is. You see, Jesus is answering the first question that the disciples had. He answered the second question first. That's called the chiasm. If I ask you where did you go on vacation and when did you get back, you will probably answer the typical Western way, we went to the beach and we got back last night. But if you answered it in a chiastic form, which is very exemplified throughout the Old and New Testaments, you would say, got back last night and we went to the beach. You answer the questions in the reverse order in which they're given. Jesus does that here. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? He answers about the signs of his coming in the end of the age first, and now he's saying, let me tell you when these things will be. And the first words that he says is, I don't know. But of that day and hour, verse 36, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. In another passage he says, not even the Son knows. How can that be the triune God, one God and three persons, and one of those persons does not know what the other one does? I can't explain it other than the fact that Jesus Christ, I believe willfully has chosen not to know something that is limited to the Father's knowledge only. But even though Jesus cannot tell us a date and time, he does want to tell us what's going to happen. And he goes on and he says, but as the days of Noah, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Only the Father knows. But these characteristics before his return on the Mount of Olives, he wants to define what's actually going to take place because you see his coming begins with the first leg of his coming. There's two legs of his coming. There's two parts. That coming is a process. And there is going to be a day when the Father is going to say in the third heaven to his Son who is on a throne in bodily form as we speak, he is going to say to his Son, it's time. His Son will stand up from the throne and begin his descent down to earth's atmosphere. And the parousia has now begun. The coming has now begun. And the first part of that coming, he outlines. It'll be like the days of Noah. Noah was called to build an ark, and for decades he warned the people of coming judgment. And yet we know from the text itself in Genesis that the people did not heed the judgment. They did not heed the warning. And the Bible says here that the flood came, he says, and took them all away. Notice verse 38, For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. The parousia is going to begin at a time where people are going to be going on as life is normal. This is not describing birth pangs. This is describing normal life, even with a future and hope. If you've been at weddings recently, you know that these people are planning on a future together. 
They're planning on days of happiness. They may even be starting to talk about raising a family. And that's, he says, how the days were before Noah's flood. And then all of a sudden, the flood came and took them all away. And the Greek word for taking them away is a word that means to thrust away. It's almost like a word of law enforcement who would handcuff a person and take them into the squad car and say, book them. That's the type of word, and these people will be thrust away into judgment. And so too, when this first leg happens, the world's people will be thrust away into seven years where God pours out his wrath on this earth, and they experience God's judgment. They did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Noah enters the ark. Verse 38 at the end, until the day that Noah entered the ark. Noah and his family were delivered. By the way, it's interesting that the term ark is only used of two structures in the Old Testament, this Hebrew word. One is Noah's ark, but the other one is the basket that baby Moses was placed in. In fact, the word pitch is only used twice in the Old Testament, and it's in these two structures that were both painted with pitch in order to allow better flotation of the structures. Noah's Ark saved humanity, saved the human race by the family who then procreated. Noah's Ark saved the nation of Israel by giving them a deliverer who later brought them through the Red Sea, a sea that destroyed the armies of Egypt. So too, life is going to be going on as normal with us when the parousia, parousia begins. Notice what Jesus said. Verse 40 and 41, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be at the grinding mill. They will be grinding there, preparing for the day's food, and one will be taken and the other left. This is a different word for taken, not thrust away. This is a word that actually I think would be better received or better understood as received. It means to welcome. It's what you do with somebody that is coming to your home for dinner. You welcome them through the door. It's the same word Jesus used in John 14. When I come again, I will receive you to myself. Same exact word. Here, two women will be grinding at the mill. They would go to the mill, they would take their grain, they would buy their grain, they would then go to the mill and with these millstones would see their grain ground to flour and they would go home and bake their bread for the day. It was just normal day's activities. Two men were in the field and they would cultivate or plant or harvest or whatever they're doing and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be at Aldi's with their carts full, waiting to check out, and one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in a commute to northern Virginia on an early morning, and one will be taken, the other left. People will be going on with normal activities, and all of a sudden one leaves and is received into the clouds, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. Life will be going on as normal. 
It's illustrated by a thief who comes at unexpected times. He doesn't warn you. He comes at a time you don't expect, and therefore the implication is be prepared. You know, Jesus was ascending into heaven in such a way or into the skies in such a way that it was witnessed. They watched him, the disciples did, as he went up. I don't think we should conclude that the event where one is taken and the other left is an instantaneous disappearing act. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does teach that we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Our bodies will become resurrected bodies in the twinkling of an eye, no longer susceptible to disease or death. But the Bible does not tell us how we will ascend. And as I was thinking about it this week, just imagine the animals marching in two by two under the sovereign control of their creator to the ark for their deliverance and the public watching that. Imagine watching Noah and his family making their way up the ramp into the ark And the Bible says, and God shut them in. I don't think that it is out of range of a possibility that so too the world will see and witness something they've never seen before, and that's a massive amount of humanity that will make their ways up into the skies and then be veiled by clouds and disappear. Many will make all kinds of excuses how that happened, but it's certainly going to strike them. What we have here is the parousia. Last week we talked about these periods of time, seven years of birth pangs, abomination of desolation, and great birth pangs, followed by the second coming now. But it all begins with the taking. Two men in the field, two women buying their groceries. And that's how the parousia begins. Paul elaborates in the epistles that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive will be caught up with them in meet the Lord in the air. In fact, the scriptures teach us in the New Testament there will be two trumpets. The first trumpet will sound, and the second trumpet will sound called the last trumpet. Renald Showers makes the point that the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians is a military trumpet because the trumpet spoken of in chapter 14 is definitely military and likely the second trumpet that Paul refers to as well. This reminds me of Numbers chapter 10, when the trumpets would sound for war, and two trumpets were made to sound off when Israel was to gather at the tabernacle to prepare for war. And now two trumpets will sound, bringing up God's people now in resurrected bodies, immortal bodies, because they are being called to war. The army is going home, but only to return to fight the greatest battle in all human history. Personally, I believe that the geological world today is shouting out to mankind. Did you know that over 70% of the geological record tells us that things are sedimentary? In other words, it was formed by water. 
The fossil record is shouting out of sudden death and destruction worldwide and universally. Because the world itself, creation itself, our physical world is crying out, there was a flood, be prepared, there's a future judgment coming. And Peter reminds us of the same things in 2 Peter 3. Our culture is in a decline, undoubtedly. But folks, it's not time to mourn over that. It's time to build. It's time to build. It's the time to pour our lives into eternal matters. It's time to build friendships with unsaved people so they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's time to invest our spiritual gifts and obey God's calling to use whatever ability he has given us that can help accomplish the building of God's church. Patty was reading the news just a couple of weeks back, and she made the comment, what's this world going to be for our grandchildren? And I responded to her with the words of Paul, make the most of your time, because the days are evil. Let's build. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't mourn difficulties in life. God understands that. Jesus wept at a funeral of a very close friend. We do mourn the losses and the tribulations that we experience. But Paul says we mourn differently. We mourn, more, we mourn with hope. We don't mourn like those who have no hope. And be sensitive to that. People mourn the loss of their health, the loss of loved ones. They can mourn the loss of their youthfulness. About a year ago, during a pastoral staff meeting, one of our guys invited another person, a Christian leader in our community, to come and just join us. And he began to tear and to cry as he outlined what he had just experienced three weeks earlier, and that is the death of his wife. He said these words, which were unforgettable. He said, many people come to me and say, you're going to see her again. And he said, I know that's true, but I can't hug that at night. God understands that. He understands the difficulties that we face in our own turbulence as we wait for the parousia. But we must remember that it's only for a time, and the best is yet to come. There's a new flight plan, the diversion of the severe turbulence, a flight plan that has a great amount of hope. Paul says that the present trials and persecutions in 2 Thessalonians writes that these are preparatory for those of us who are going to experience the kingdom of God. God is preparing his rulers. He's honing us through those difficulties. Patty said that the soldiers that marched through those two lines to that warm welcome were not watching the people in the lines. They were looking ahead because at the end of those long lines were husbands and wives and children and parents and grandparents 
to rejoin those soldiers. We have that to look forward to. The Bible says that we will be caught up together. The dead in Christ first. Those who are alive next. But we will be caught up together to meet the King of Kings as we make it through those clouds and see him for the first time face to face, the greatest sight of all. And Paul says, comfort one another with these words. That day at Ruby Tuesdays, we had got our salads, received our salads, and we uh, began to eat when all of a sudden a light bulb went on in my mind, and I said to Mark, I know why those guys over there are gathering. I got it. Because each of those men have lost a son. Jeff lost his from a car accident. All of them lost theirs through the prime of life. One was murdered at the Virginia Tech shootings a number of years back. Another one contracted a disease that is not common for a young man in his 30s. And another one died just two years after graduating from college and taking on the position of a football coach and a school teacher and a rare heart defect took his life unexpectedly. But I want to share with you why Jeff likes talking about the rapture. Because today he still mourns the loss of his son. But he doesn't mourn without hope. He mourns with hope. He keeps that before him. It's the very thing that keeps him going. And he says, comfort one another with these words. Do you want to be part of that army? Jesus Christ died for you and rose from the dead. We celebrated it this morning. He paid the price in full, and anyone who wants to be in that army can join it and have everlasting life with Jesus Christ in brand new bodies forever, ever, and eventually on a brand new earth by putting our faith in Christ alone, not in the works that we try to do to earn it, because we can't earn it. He earned it for us. And he offers it as a free gift by putting our faith in his son. Together, we will rise and ascend to meet the Lord in the air. We will be united with our family and friends and those that we miss. I took a few minutes to write down names that came to my mind very quickly. It took me a very short time in thinking about people, loved ones of yours and loved ones of mine. There's Jim and Jack, Dave and Dave and Kenny and Marion and Don and Walt and Jane, uh, Jenny, Terry and Nancy and Kay and Josh and Brian and Jimmy and Derek and Mary and Josie and Bob and Jake and Martha and Joe and Susie and Gil and Zane and Dwight and Haddon and Warren and Stan and Charles and Howard, Joe and Edna, Albert and Joanne, Johnny and Rosie and Elmer and Ruby and Eloise and Don and George and Billy and Cliff and Ethel, Paul and Martin 
Matthew, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and all the rest. And together we will be together. The army has come home. They're reunited with their loved ones. And then penetrating through the clouds to see the Lord in those clouds. To await our return as an army with total victory. We mourn, but not as those who have no hope. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. And I pray that as we do mourn, that you will increase our hope each day. I pray that you will increase our love for his appearing. That you would continue to work in our lives to decrease our affections for the here and now. We pray, Father, that these things will become such a reality in the depths of our heart that we will live lives here in this earth making the most of our time because the days are evil. But we also know this is not the end of the story. We thank you the best is yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen.